Thank you, Ethan, for your ministry to us in song this evening. Reminds us there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. It's all because of who he is. We are who we are. Amen? Amen. I want to echo Errol's sentiments with regards to our attendance tonight. Uh, so many churches are closed at nights. I wonder why. Have you thought about that? Crime has taken over to the extent that some churches feel as if, you know, crime is bigger than God, so it's best to just shut down and let the criminals win. But we commend you tonight for your faithfulness, because actually it is uh, a testimony of what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, God's awesomeness. There's no doubt in any of our minds that God is awesome. Amen? No doubt. We read about it, we talk about it, we sing about it. So there's no doubt in our minds. The question is, do we appreciate the relevancy of God's awesomeness in our daily lives? And it's a question that we ought to continuously ponder each day that God blesses us with his new mercies. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for your new mercies that you showered upon us today. Mercies that we didn't have before because they're new every morning. Thank you. We thank you for the opportunity once again to hear from you, to hear what you would have us do in order to order our lives that you might be glorified, that you might be honored, and that your awesomeness would be, continue to be a testimony in our daily goings and comings regardless of the outward circumstances that we encounter day in and day out. So, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be attentive to what you'd say to us this evening. Pray, Lord, that Randy Pierce would decrease and Jesus Christ would increase, that you might be exalted upon the highest pinnacle of praise and be glorified. For this we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um, as a boy... Uh, growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was The Lone Ranger. I loved that show. And in one of the episodes, uh, The Lone Ranger and his faithful, trusty sidekick, Tonto, was riding across the dusty plain terrain. And uh, they noticed in the distance a dust cloud. And it wasn't too long before they realized that that dust cloud was about 10,000 Indians approaching them in the distance, from the south, from the north. They abruptly changed direction and headed south. But then they saw another dust cloud coming from that direction as well. So they turned west. Lo and behold, there was another dust cloud. 10,000 Indians approaching from the west, so they turned to the east. And the same thing, another dust cloud with 10,000 Indians approaching from the east. And so they were surrounded, you might say, and so they abruptly reined their horses to a halt, and the Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and says, what are we going to do? Tonto looked at him and said, what do you mean, we, pale face? <laughs> Sometimes we're like, like that. Sometimes we, that, the enemies that surround us appear to be so great that we find ourselves wondering if actually we're on the right side. Apart from the size, the forces of evil also seem to 
look as if they are much better equipped and organized than the forces of righteousness or the forces of light. And it seems like evil is flourishing all around us. There's no advantage at all to being righteous. And so we wonder if I'm living the right way, if I've, if I've taken the right side. We scratch our heads and wonder if we're really on the wrong side or not. The words of Habakkuk the prophet comes to mind because it sums up how we feel sometimes, especially in the times that we're living in. Habakkuk, with these words, could be someone who's standing right out there on Collins Avenue saying these very words to us right now because they're so applicable to what many people are feeling and going through and, and experiencing today. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2 through 4, he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? Do you not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry out, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. Doesn't that sound like Nassau? That sounds like exactly what is happening in our world today, isn't it? But guess what? What Abaka is saying is just by the way. You know, that thought came to mind this passage, uh, we, we came across this passage in our discovery class on Wednesday. And I said, wow, that's amazing. That's what people are going through today. That's what we experience today. The courts are paralyzed. No justice in the courts. People are always arguing and fighting. Misery is everywhere. What's going on today? This is the same attitude that was prominent also in the days of Nahum the prophet. God's people, Judah, were suffering. Nineveh's military forces, which opposed Judah's God, looked like they were winning left, right, and center. And the prophet, people of Judah, were wondering if, if they were really on the right side. They were wondering if God had abandoned them, if he had forgotten them. Now, like Jonah, Nahum was a prophet assigned by God to Nineveh at the time when it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that name Assyria coming up over and over and over and over again because they were, they were the arch enemy of God's people throughout the Old Testament. In fact, God used them many times to punish his people. So you'll see that name many times in the Old Testament. It was, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And he lived in the southwest of Judah in a little town called Elklosh. So he knew exactly what was going on with Judah. He could identify with what the people were experiencing, the suffering and all that they were going through because he lived in the town. And he prophesied in Nineveh between 63 and 612 BC. Now 150 years earlier, Jonah witnessed Nineveh's full repentance. Remember that? God told uh, uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh to reach the people, to minister to the people, and he decided to go in the opposite direction. Well, eventually, after some chafing, 
uh, God convinced him to go. And he went. And, uh, and, and he still wasn't satisfied when the people repented. Because he really wanted God to put a, a real good beating on them. He really wanted God to punish them. And so he really wasn't satisfied. But their full repentance came about 150 years earlier than the day of Nahum. Israel, Assyria, was a world power during the time of Nahum's prophesying. And it was in full control, full and absolute control of the fertile crescent. Assyria appeared to be unstoppable in its quest to conquer every nation that it encountered. Israel had already been conquered, and its cruel and savage warriors were causing tremendous suffering in Judah. And this is what Nahum was experiencing during the time of his period of prophesying in Nineveh. And so God moved him to declare God's anger against the evils of Syria, the Syrian reign. But, you know, as we say in our day, every dog has his day. And eventually, uh, the Assyrian Empire was brought to a sudden halt uh, by God in just a few decades uh, after Nahum's reign. But Nahum's warning, his word of warning to Nineveh, was also an indirect word of comfort to his generation in Judah during the time of his prophecy. In other words, the divine power of God's awesomeness to destroy his enemies is the same power that God uses to protect his own people. And so Nahum was giving a sort of a, a roundabout message uh, to the people of Nineveh, the people of, Nineveh, people of Judah uh, as a result of his direct words to Israel's Nineveh's enemy. Notice what he says in verse 8. But he will sweep away his enemies in an overflowing flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Now we're going to look at that verse a little bit later in depth. But for now, Nathan was, what Nahum was saying was the Lord who appeared to be so ineffective would ultimately exercise his awesome power. That's what he was saying. You know, when we lived in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, I had a friend uh, who, whenever we were driving along the highway and someone passed him at a high rate of speed, he would often say, boy, if you know what I have under this hood, you'll think twice about passing me like that. But of course, it was a lame threat. He didn't have anything under the hood that could match with the speed that the person who passed him. But I guess that was, that was his way of consoling himself. Well, when it comes to God, God makes no lame threats. Notice what he says in verse 9. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Whatever you come up against God with, it is nothing compared with the awesomeness of his power to overcome it. That's what he's saying. That's verse 9. And so to the people of his day who were struck with pessimism, like many people are struck today, Nahum said that even though Judah is suffering and Nineveh appears to be succeeding at every turn, the final score is yet to be settled. And we say today, the fat lady hasn't sung yet. The end hasn't come yet. God will in due course bring judgment 
on sinful Nineveh while sparing faithful Judah. And that's a message for us today. God, whatever, whatever we're going through, whatever, whatever anybody is inflicting upon us, God indeed will come through. He will spare us because of our righteousness. And this is the message we need today. When we read the headlines and we listen to the news media, we also get the impression sometimes that the wrong side is winning. And where do we play in this equation? His team was behind in the scores and a victory looked very, very unlikely. So a basketball coach said to his team of boys, don't be pessimistic, boys. One of the boys responded by asking, Coach, what does pessimistic mean? Does it mean we're going to lose? Well, you could say that it's a pretty good definition of pessimism. It means thinking you're going to lose. And many of us think that way today. The people in, in, in Nineveh were thinking that way. They were thinking that probably we're on the wrong side. We're going to lose. They were very, very pessimistic. And so as in the days of Nathan, this is the same attitude that invades our minds today. How we need to hear from the prophet Nahum. The message that he proclaimed in his day is the same message we need today. Get out of that pessimistic mode because God is still an awesome God. It's not an awesomeness that we sing about or talk about, but it's an awesomeness that we find relevant in our everyday experiences. When we come up against those giants like Assyria, and we wonder if we're on the wrong side or on the wrong team. Well, God's message to Nahum was twofold. First of all, God's awesomeness in his provision. God's awesomeness in his provisions. To Judah, Nahum declared that God is awesome in providing for his people's needs regardless of what those needs are. In other words, there's nothing that God's people needs that God in his awesomeness cannot provide. Now that word awesome is a, it's a word that's really used very loosely today. You know, I for one believe that it describes who God is and what he's capable of doing and, it could, and no one else could compare with who he is and what he's capable of doing. So I believe that word awesome should only be relegated to God and what he does. But it's used so flippantly today that for many of us in the body of Christ, it's been diluted with regards to his meaning and it doesn't carry the full weight of what it's supposed to mean. In fact, just before coming to the church team, I, I, I got a, a Facebook post of a, of a mother who was talking about her son just turning 13. And her very words was, he's going to be an awesome young man. How we use that word so flippantly today. It should only be relegated to God himself. Because only God is awesome. He's awesome in his provisions to his people. Look at verse 7. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good. A strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. God's awesomeness is seen in three, word, three words based in this verse. Notice. The Lord is good. He is awesome in his goodness. Now, when, we, when God does something very traumatic in our lives, that's the time to use the word awesome. 
Because he's done something awesome. It, is attributed, it can be attributed to him because of what he has done. And that's what he's saying here. God is awesome in his goodness to his people. Always. Never fails. And then he says he's a strong refuge when trouble comes. In other words, he is a well-built self-safe haven. He is the ultimate of hurricane shelters. He is the ultimate of tornado shelters. He is awesome in his protection and security of his people. That's what he's saying. And then he is, he is close to those who trust him, trust in him. In other words, he's as close as he needs to be. Whenever we're going through difficulties and turmoils and trials and we feel as if God is distant, he's closer than you can, you can ever think he is. In fact, God is no closer than he can ever be. And so he's awesome in his closeness to those who place their ultimate trust in him. Now, if your trust is wavering in all kinds of other places, obviously, you will not be able to experience the awesomeness of God's closeness. But he is awesome in his provisions to his people. A young man in college sent an email to his dad one day and he says, Dad, it's been two weeks since you sent me a check. What kind of Christian kindness is that? His father responded by saying, Dear son, that is called unremitting Christian kindness. Well, you see, God our Father is not like that. God our Father in his kindness toward his children is never unremitting in his kindness toward us. His kindness is always evident, is absolute, and is always in abundance when it comes to providing for his children. There will never come a day, but you know, even though God is, 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 is always there to provide for us when we have needs, he's not an unremitting Christian father. But there will come some days in our lives when we are tempted to ask that question. What difference does Christianity make when the bottom drops out? That's probably what the people of Nineveh were experiencing during the days of Nahum the prophet when they were so pessimistic. They had placed all their faith and their confidence in God and it seems as if the bottom has dropped out. The enemy seemed to be succeeding every time and they seem to be wondering if they're on the right side. Well, Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40, verse 30, 31, reminds us of a promise which holds the threefold descriptive of divine help that can give us the kind of comfort and strength that we need in our day and time. And I'm sure this is the kind of comfort and strength that Nahum was able to encourage the people of Judah when they felt as if the bottom had dropped out because of the oppressive Assyrian Empire. First of all, Isaiah reminds us that of the ecstasy which sometimes allows us to mount up with wings as eagles. And then there is the energy that allows us to run and not be weary. And thirdly, there is the endurance that allows us to walk and not faint. That's what God provides for us. That's what is involved and all-encompassing in his awesomeness in provision. To his generation, discouraged by the difficulties they faced in their lives, Nahum declared that God in his awesomeness would give them the strength 
to make it through all the hard times that they were experiencing. He wanted them to understand that the same God who provided the ecstasy in crossing the Red Sea and the energy for crossing, into the, crossing the Jordan into the promised land would not come up short when it came to providing the endurance to see them through until he brought judgment on Nineveh. And we need to remember that too. When it comes to caring for his own, no one can do it like God. God is awesome in his provision to his people. And many of us can say amen to that because we have seen God do it in our own lives. If we haven't seen it in our own lives, we have witnessed it in the lives of others who have gone through many perils in their own lives. God's awesomeness in his provision ought to be a relevant factor in our daily lives. But then God is not only awesome in his provision, but he's also awesome in his punishment. And whenever we hear that word awesome, one of the first things that comes to mind is the, is the, is the wrath of God. Isn't it? We think of all the punishment and, and what God has, was meted out in terms of his wrath on, 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 on many of his enemies, including Assyria, even though he used them to punish his people. We'll see also that he used them as an example of how awesome his punishment can actually be. To Nineveh, Nahum declared that God is also awesome, awesome in dishing out the most severe kind of punishment. Verse 8. But he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of the night. Now when you sweep something away, do you want to see it again? Do you? What's the reason for sweeping it away? Huh? You want to get rid of it, right? When you sweep something out, that's good riddance. You don't want to see that no more. That's why you swept it out. Well, this is what God says he will do with his enemies. He's going to sweep them away. That's his intent. The scale of God's awesomeness and punishment is com comprehensive. When you get comprehensive and coverage on, your, coverage on your motor vehicle, it covers everything. If the car gets total, you get a new car, right? That's what comprehensive means. It covers everything. It's total. It's complete. And this is what... Nahum is telling the people of Judah. He says, God is awesome in his punishment. His punishment is comprehensive. In other words, God's intent with regards to the Syrian Empire is complete removal. Not probation, not rehabilitation, but annihilation. That's his intent. When he uses the word sweep away, he's going to get rid of them. It's going to be like he's going to treat them as if he treated Pharaoh. Remember what he told Moses when the Egyptians were chasing the children of Israel as they were exiting Egypt? He says, look, at this army of Pharaoh, the one that you see today, you will see him no more for what? Forever. Complete removal. And that's what Nahum is saying here. He says, these people are oppressing you, but guess what? God's going to deal with them. He's going to show, him, show them his awesomeness in punishment. And then it's notice the extent of God's punishment, is God's awesomeness in punishment. It's devastating in magnitude. Not what do you say? He would sweep away his enemies, how? 
in an overwhelming flood. Now, whenever we hear the word flood, what comes to mind? The destruction of the world, right? That word flood has a really strong connotation to it. It means wiping out. Because the last time we heard that word, the whole civilization, the whole world was wiped out. And God says, this is what I'm going to do to your enemy. I'm going to wipe them out in an overwhelming flood. It's going to be, their, their devastation is going to be in a tremendous great magnitude. You know, that word uh, flood is, uh, is, is so impacting. Uh, we heard it just recently in all the news of the flooding that was going on in the United States. The newscasters would use the, the term, uh, this flood is of biblical proportions. We hear it all the time. Because of the, the, the devastating magnitude of the biblical flood, whenever we have something that's overwhelming, it is referred to as being of biblical proportions. Well, God says, with, with regards to the Syrians, I'm going to wipe them out. And he used that word flood to remind us of how great and devastating in magnitude that wipeout is going to be. And then notice his determination to do this. It's not flippant. He says, he will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Now what happens when it gets dark? People knock off and go home, right? All work stops. If there's a construction site, when darkness falls, everything goes to standstill. It stops until the next day. And then every, all the activity picks back up again. But notice what he says here. He will pursue his foes into the darkness. of. In other words, he ain't no knocking off time. There is no knocking off time with regards to how God, how long God is going to pursue them. That is the determination that God has with regards to his awesomeness in wiping out the foe. He is relentless in his chase. He will stop at nothing. Man may be limited in his pursuits. Whenever a, a police department in one jurisdiction is chasing a villain and they get to the border of another jurisdiction, they have to stop. And then the, the, the authorities in that new jurisdiction would pick up the chase and continue on and on and on it goes. But God says, ain't no jurisdictional boundaries are going to stop me. Darkness is not even going to stop me. And guess what? He's speaking on your behalf. He's speaking on my behalf. He says, listen, don't worry about the enemies. Don't worry what they're going to do to you or what they're doing to you. When I chase them, there's no way they're going to be able to get away from me because my chase is going to be relentless. In other words, I'm not going to stop. And so as a just God in his awesomeness, his awesomeness and punishment must match the offenses committed. And so it tells us of the degree to which he's going to punish the enemy based on how they have treated God's people. The pure brutality of the Assyrians, that the Assyrians practiced on men, women, and children, made it a, a ruthless army. It was cruel in the way it dealt with You think the Romans were cruel. These people were vicious. Their crime, the armies didn't just limit their actions to looting and destroying property. But they went so far as burying people alive, skinning people alive, impaling people on sharp poles and leaving them out in the scorching hot sun to bake. That was how brutal and how cruel these people were. 
721 BC, God used Assyria to punish the northern kingdom of Israel because of the extent of their brutality. And God really wanted to teach the northern kingdom a lesson. He used Assyria to do it. Isaiah chapter 36, 37 records the Assyrians' attempt in 701 BC to defeat Judah. But again, God stepped in. And God destroyed the army. Yet still, the Assyrians remained and they remained a thorn in the side of all of the nations surrounding it, to the extent that every nation tried to win Assyria's approval purely out of fear. They were so afraid of Assyria that they were willing to do whatever Assyria wanted them to do. They became slaves to Syria. Nineveh was finally destroyed in 612 BC. But get this. It was destroyed by the, by the Medes and the Babylonians. But what was interesting about the destruction is that the destruction was so total, it was so devastating in magnitude. And notice it happened in 612 BC. But it was so total in destruction and magnitude that the ruins of the city were not discovered until 1842. God keeps his word when it comes to his awesomeness. What God says in verse 8, he says, I will sweep them away. I will sweep, he will sweep his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue them into the darkness of the night. And he was true to his word. He destroyed that city to such an extent that for centuries they couldn't find the ruins of it. He's on our side. No, we're not on the wrong side. We're on the right side. Because God is awesome, not only in his provision to his people, but he's also awesome in his punishment. A popular entertainer was sentenced to death for killing a man in a barroom brawl. And he was sentenced to die in the electric chair. And as they were marching him off to the death chamber, he stopped and just before he got to the chamber, he stopped and he looked up at the ceiling and uh, he whispered these words under his breath. I quote, he said, I knew all along that God ran the show of his universe. And to think, I actually believe that I could steal one little act. End of quote. This is the eventual result of the sovereignty of God. When we think of God's awesomeness, we ought to think of his sovereignty. It's God and God alone who runs the show. Because he's the one in charge. And we need never forget that. How do we not forget it? By remembering the relevancy of his awesomeness in every single activity and occasion and circumstance and, and experience that we go through in this life. This world belongs to him lock, stock, and barrel because he created it from scratch. From scratch. And he's the one who will bring it to closure. Not global warming or anything else. God is the one who will bring it to closure. Because God is holy, there will be no acquittals. No committee for the prerogative of mercy. 
know what place the people in England name? The Privy Council. No Privy Council. The Word of God reminds us in chapter 1 and verse 3. He will by no means do what? He will do what? He will by no means do what? Leave the guilty unpunished. No way. We need to remember that. When we see all that's going on around us. If the courts don't do it, he'll find a way to do it. We're reminded of a news article recently where a man was acquitted by the courts of raping a 14-year-old girl. What happened to him? Someone killed him. Someone killed him. Sitting in his backyard, someone walked up and blew his brains out. And according to the newscast, when his body was being taken away, the people in the neighborhood sang, it's all right now. You know, Proverbs tells us that's what's going to happen. Someone wrote on the entrance of a seminated words, God is dead, and signed it Adolf. Someone else saw it, probably a Christian, and came along and wrote, Adolf is dead, signed God. Rich Mullins sings a song called God is Awesome. And if you notice the words of that song, you will notice that he speaks about God's awesomeness not only in his wrath, but also in his grace and mercy. Uh, um, could we play that clip now, please? I want you to pay close attention to the words of the song because it speaks clearly about what we're talking about tonight, God's awesomeness. On the Ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. And the Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, and so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God.
He's not only awesome in his provision, but he's awesome in his wrath and the splendors of his creation. Because we are so often caught up in the closeness of the situation, there's a tendency for us to doubt the sufficiency and supremacy of God sometimes. The prophet Nahum challenges us to take a long, hard look. And we'll realize that the awfulness of man is no match for the awesomeness of God when it comes to his punishment. And so the day is coming when the adults and the Ninevehs will be swept up in the tide of God's unfolding purpose. Let's honor God. The songwriter says, we've too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. Let's not forget that. Let's honor God by appreciating the relevancy of his awesomeness in provision and in punishment on our behalf in our daily lives so that we can wholeheartedly declare without any kind of reservation whatsoever, hallelujah, for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. May that be a constant utterance on our lips daily as we acknowledge the relevancy of God's awesomeness in our daily goings and comings. Amen? Father, we thank you and praise you this evening for a reminder of what you've told us so many times, that you are indeed an awesome God. Awesome in how you provide for us day in and day out. We think of the children of Israel, whom you reminded at one point in their pilgrimage that their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't grow old. You are awesome in your provision. We are reminded of how you delivered your people through the Red Sea. You rolled up the waters and allowed your people to walk through on dry ground. You are awesome in your provision. But you are also awesome in your wrath. May we remember what you have done to those who were your enemies so that we can be comforted by what you can do to our enemies today. We thank you, Lord, for your awesomeness in our lives. Help us never to forget it. Bless us now as we leave this place, take us to our homes, our places of abode. Grant us traveling mercies. With your blessed benediction we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and make you a blessing for him as you go.